Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Good to see everybody and tuning in online as well. And let's all join together in opening up our Bibles to Ezra chapter 4. If you want to use a blue, blue pew Bible, you can find that on page 391. Uh, but before we dig in there, I want to just take a moment to talk about something that we are going to be rolling out here in the next couple of months. And um, what I'm about to announce really flows from our Refocus Sermon Series, which if you were here for, we did in September, our annual vision series. And this year we called it Refocus with this aim of clarity, of wanting as a church to think deeply about how we can be clear on how we are going to carry out uh, God's mission to make disciples uh, not just as a church in a vacuum, but in the church that's in uh, northern New Jersey in 2021, in our day, in our time, in this context. And then kind of coinciding with that, uh, you know, we brought on Pastor Joe in December of last year, really kind of uh, giving him kind of authority over the adult ministry of forming and shaping our men and women here at Grace and how to kind of put that puzzle together. And as he has kind of learned our church, learned our vision, uh, started to understand the suburban context coming from Manhattan, uh, kind of what one of the things that this has led to is what uh, we are introducing uh, something called Grace Seminars. Grace Seminars, which are going to be uh, really single-day events where uh, we are bringing somebody in from the outside, an expert in a given field, to address a topic that we just pastorally feel is especially vital for the people of Grace Church to be equipped in as we seek to live those God-glorifying lives in a constantly shifting world. And so our first seminar, and as you heard in our announcements, we're, we're in a time where there's just a lot going on, a lot of ministries being promoted, and we try and be smart. We're probably not perfect at it, but we try and be smart as to the timing of things, uh, that we're not just overloading calendars, but as to where things get placed. And uh, this first seminar is going to be held on Sunday, December 5th. Sunday, December 5th at 6 p.m., and we're going to welcome clinical psychologist Dr. Brent Bounds. Uh, I think we're going to have a picture of him just on the uh, screen. Uh, and, and really, Dr. Bounds is going to share how uh, so much of the current struggles that Christians are facing in our day and time can be traced back to what he calls an identity crisis. And the temptation that even Christians have to find our identity in cultural or maybe even political ideologies as opposed to finding it in the unchanging truth of God's word. Um, and the reason why we're starting out with this first seminar is just uh, pastorally, um, as I hear and talk to people all the time, all the time, uh, both inside and outside our church, it's apparent how um, often those conversations at some point have to intersect with the aspect of identity, of who are we. And whether it's conversations with parents as they lead in their home and disciple their children on how to navigate the realms of sexual identity and gender identity that their kids are learning, uh, to teens wrestling through their place in the world, because teens do what we've all done as teens, that we want to kind of carve our own path uh, in, in, the, in the realm of, uh, as opposed to just doing the way things, the way only things have always been done. I can't even say it. Uh, but like the fact that that's kind of like the teen mindset they always have, of how do I carve my own path? Who am I in this world? To men and women who are just exhausted exhausted and asking uh, about the cultural hot topics or the theories and how we should relate to them as believers in the church and how it truly impacts mental health and spiritual health. And uh, just it's okay for us to say that in many ways we're not okay. 
but then what are the tools that we can have to address them? So this seminar is going to be from Dr. Bounds. It'll be followed by an extended time of Q&A. Uh, we are going to be offering childcare really through elementary school because we just want as many uh, people uh, as possible to come and just want you to kind of mark your calendar for that. Register early uh, to ensure that you are equipped in the pursuit to live a godly life for his glory in a constantly changing world. And we just hope that seminars, this is not the silver bullet for us as a church, but we hope this is one aspect of discipleship that you will be served well in. And you can register for that. I think it's opening today, uh, you know, on the events tab of our website where all of our registrations are held. All right, with that said, we're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Ezra. And we're on to chapter 4. If you have not been with us so far in this series, what we are seeing week after week is um, a God who is bringing his people out of exile. And he's bringing them out of exile back into their homeland that he has given them. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw the need for a renewed vision, how God's people need a renewed vision for restored hope that only God can provide. Uh, last week in chapter 3, uh, in the midst of the kind of temple rebuilding project, we, we left things off where the, that first wave of returned exiles uh, now gathered together in Jerusalem. They witnessed the laying of the foundation of this new temple, and chapter 3 ended with this loud shout of praise, of worship together, of just responding to God's goodness over them, their, his grace towards them. And all is good in the book of Ezra. Until now, until you turn to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a chapter of opposition. The remnant has returned to the land, but it did not return to land that was empty. There were other people there who were not okay with Israel coming back. And so chapter 4 is a chapter of opposition, and, and really, these next two weeks are about opposition, and uh, I, I do think it's important that if you're going to hear this week, you're going to want to hear next week, because today's really just going to talk about, if I could say, the doctrine of opposition. That may not sound exciting, but I think it hopefully will be informative, of, of the fact that God's people will always face opposition in the fallen world when they're seeking to do the things God has called them to do. And then next week is really going to be into chapters 5 and 6 in the overcoming of that opposition. But this morning, as we dig into the text, we're going to see three things. And if you're taking notes, you don't have to write these all down now. We'll, we'll see them as we go. But there is the reality of opposition. Then there's the tactics of opposition. And then third, the impact of opposition. So let's go ahead and open up to Ezra 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through Six. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esharadun, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. All right, so the question that is before us is that when it comes to carrying out their calling in the world, what are God's people up against? What are you up against as you seek to live out your calling in this world? Again, three things. This is not everything there is to say about opposition, as always. I feel like I always need to say that. But what this text reveals about it, number one, is just the reality of opposition. All right, hang with me here, because on its face, if you have read all of Ezra 4, you probably got a little lost. The timeline of Ezra 4 can be very difficult to follow, um, because the historical timeline jumps around a bit. And so I want to just take a minute to explain how chapter 4 is constructed and then show why does the author do this because I think he's making a point. All right, so, I mean, just if this doesn't interest you, uh, just humor me for a moment on the historical timeline, all right? Or check your fantasy football lineup for today, and then I'll call you back when it's time. Don't do that. I mean, it just, you won't. I know, you know, you won't come back. So hang with me here. Uh, And I, I have a timeline on the screen that hopefully will be helpful to give a visual as I'm explaining it. Ezra 4, just the chapter 4, covers 80 years of history. That spans the course of four different kings. We've read in the first three verses three of those four kings, and the next verse, verse 7, is the fourth king, Artaxerxes, all of which get mentioned. Verses 1 through 5 deals with the rebuilding of the temple and the opposition to it which within the reigns of the first two kings. So that opposition that we just read, that was not a weekend that they delayed the building of the temple. It was about 15 to 20 years that the delay took place. And those two kings were Cyrus and Darius. Cyrus reigned from 539 B.C. to 530 B.C. And then there was some hassling for the throne within um, the Persian Empire until King Darius becomes king in 522 B.C. and he goes to 486 Then the author digresses in verses 6 through 23 before returning to this plot line in verse 24 at the end of chapter 4. So first five verses dealing with the temple, verses 6 to 23 is now talking about 80 years after verses 1 through 5. And then that storyline picks up again in the last verse of chapter 4, which we'll see, and then carries you into chapters 5 and 6. So why this this digression? Why this digression by the author to talk about the opposition of later periods with two other kings? Ahasuerus, whose Greek name was Xerxes, who reigned after Darius from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C., and then Artaxerxes I, who reigned from 464 B.C. to 423 B.C. What's going on here? Why? Most commentators think that the author, who, who we don't know to be Ezra, but most people assume is Ezra, was writing the story of the opposition of the temple in the time of Zerubbabel, which I said last week, Ezra came 80 years after. He came in the second wave of exiles. So Ezra is kind of writing the history of this first wave before he got to Jerusalem, but then interrupts the narrative to insert the story of the opposition he is currently facing in his own day. And then, verse 24, he ends that interruption and then continues with the storyline towards the rebuilding of the temple. So again, the obvious question is why? It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's kind of confusing. But I think the author, whether it's Ezra or someone else, is trying to make a point. 
And I want to quote commentator Wallace Benn, who is a retired bishop within the Church of England. And uh, uh, I'm not sure if I have the quote on the screen, but here's Wallace Benn. He says, why does he do that? Perhaps to make an important point that every believer needs to take in. Each generation that is seeking to faithfully follow the Lord will find opposition from a world in rebellion against its creator. The point he is making is that the people of God, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation 21, have faced opposition at every stage of God's redemptive plan, and we should expect no different. That when it comes to carrying out the calling on our lives, whatever God is calling you to do, you will not carry that out faithfully or completely unless you acknowledge the reality of opposition. That you have an enemy who wants to draw you from that calling. Who sees it as his entire purpose to thwart you in your purposes. And at this point in history, the opposition came from what verse 1 called adversaries. Adversaries of Israel who heard that the exiles were back. And not only are they back, but they're rebuilding. And they're rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem once again. So then the next question from there is, who are the adversaries? Who are the people now in the land that Israel has returned to, to re-inhabit? We're told this in 2 Kings chapter 17, you don't need to turn there, Uh, but uh, once the ten northern tribes of Israel were exiled, in 722 B.C., we read this, 2 Kings 17 verse 24, and the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuda, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. So here's what happened. The ten northern tribes get taken into exile. The, the empire at the time that took them into exile was Assyria. That king of Assyria then took other foreign peoples that they had conquered and put them in the land they just took Israel from. And then later in 2 Kings 17, we are told the king of Assyria took some priests of Israel and decided to just send those back into the land with those other people to give them some basically religious training so they can teach them about their God. We're not even sure why he did that. But you following that? He takes Israel out. He brings other conquered people in. And then he takes just the priests of those people who have been taken out and then sprinkles them back in. The priests head back. They begin to intermarry with the foreign peoples. They also begin to mix the worship of their gods with the one true God. And then a couple hundred years passes. And so as you would imagine, what has developed now is a mixed people with a blended pluralistic religion. Then... When Judah gets exiled in 586, those neighbors to the north begin to drift south. They begin to move into those open lands. Now, 70 years later, exiles begin to return, and the reality of opposition follows. Here's where I think we need to understand from this point, is that while we as the people of God should not look for opposition, We should not be surprised by it either. Both then, the people then, and us now. 
And while our calling is not building a new temple, we are participating in the mission of Jesus Christ, who we saw last week is the greater temple, and that he is where heaven and earth meet. And it's by his sacrifice on the cross that we can all be saved through faith in him. And so we not only proclaim that message as part of our calling, but we participate in the renewal and restoration of God's kingdom. As one author put it, while we wait for heaven, we are working toward it. While we wait for heaven, we are working toward it. That is our calling. And that calling will face opposition. And while we should not look for it, we cannot be surprised by it. Jesus himself said, if you were of the world, then the world would accept you. But you are not of this world. I brought you out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. And the world opposes those it hates. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 says, quote, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't see a lot of wiggle room there for us. Right? I, I think all means all. And if we don't acknowledge the reality of opposition, here's a couple things that would happen. We, either, we, we will either fall into a trap of treating this world like it's our home, Right, like that. Remember, we talked about that idol of comfort. That like we we just we treat this world like it's our home, and then we get overly surprised again and again when we get uncomfortable in a world that we just want to be comfortable in. We'll never be comfortable here. Or the other trap is that we get wrecked again and again by the onset of trials when we think that shouldn't be happening to us because we're the people of God. We can all admit that we've been there. That you have that mentality like I'm a Christian. Like like God is for me. Why am I? Going through this, why are we growing through this? In their book, Gospel Bound, I'm going to quote a couple times today. I think I've quoted this over the summer when I first read it. But the book is called Gospel Bound, subtitle, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious World. Um, Authors Colin Hansen and Sarah Zilstra write this. Quote, gospel ground Christians feel the sharp pinch of being in the wrong spot. They work hard to make the world more just, and they pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet they know that until Jesus returns, even their best efforts are sometimes akin to painting a dirt wall. We don't want to stay here. We won't stay here. We're pilgrims. I um, had a uh, lunch with a new couple of the Grace uh, yesterday, and uh, they, they were talking about how really every five years from Australia to Singapore to Malaysia to the U.S., they have been moving, and they're like, we gravely understand the reality that this is not our home because we feel like we don't have a home because they've always kind of been moving and shifting around, and so they almost have a keener insight to the fact that we cannot treat this like it is our home because it's not our home. We need to realize the reality of opposition. That's number one. Let's go to number two. The tactics of opposition. The opposition that they face in Ezra 4, I think, contain a lot of the same tactics that the serpent used with Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, that Satan used with Jesus in the desert in Matthew chapter 4. And I think it shows us that the generations change. The outward look of opposition will change, just like it's different in 2021 than it was for the people of Israel in this time. But the tactics kind of remain the same. 
And I just want to share three tactics that I think come out of Ezra 4. Number one, the first tactic of opposition is deceitfulness. Deceitfulness. The peoples in the land come to Zerubbabel and Jeshua. You notice what they said first? Hey, um, let us join you in building this temple. Like, this is great. You guys are back. We also worship your God. So let's join together. Let's partner in this. Let's do this together. They did not start with intimidation or threat, but friendly fire. But the author accuses sin. They were adversaries. They know they're adversaries. But before they go towards another tactic, they start with deceit. The best way to thwart someone's plan is to not let them know what you're trying to do. And in Genesis chapter 3, when we're introduced to the serpent, we were told, the first thing we're told about him is that he was crafty. He was crafty. He was deceitful. And his first way to get after Eve was not intimidating her or scaring her, but it's a temptation that didn't look like a temptation. It's, he asked the question. He said, did God actually say you can't eat the tree and the fruit in this tree? Did he actually say that to you, Eve? In Matthew 4, the devil said to Jesus, Since you claim to be God, then turn these stones into bread. I think you can do it. He's not outwardly intimidating. He's being deceitful. He's being crafty. That's the first tactic of opposition. There's a manipulation with the tactic of deceitfulness. And those peoples in Jerusalem, they were not telling a complete lie when they said, Hey, we worship the same God as you do. But it was a half-truth. Remember, the priests of Israel got brought back into the land to mix in with those peoples. And so, yes, God was part of their religion, but it's a half-truth because they also worshipped a whole bunch of different other gods. And they were looking to derail Israel's plan of establishing themselves in the land and worshipping God alone, and they did it by using a half-truth to compromise their mission. But as J.I. Packer puts it, Quote, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. A half-truth that masquerades as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. This is the opposition that says, hey, great, um, it's great that you have your beliefs. I just respect you and your beliefs, but don't impose them on anybody else. You just keep them in your own home but out in public, like, do not impose that on anybody. That's not fair. So, yeah, like, we're, we're good with your God, but we're also good with every other God. Which, ironically, that statement is a belief that they're imposing on you by telling you that. And so I don't think I need to talk too much about how often this is seen today. And I want to be careful because I don't want to get into this, like, us versus them mentality. But there is a culture around us, a culture of tolerance, and it's cloaked in very good language. It sounds pretty good. Like, like, just let love win. Let everybody just worship everything that they want to worship. And there's a sense of that we want people to have the freedom to choose who they worship. But as Christians, we know that unless they believe in Jesus Christ, that their eternity is at stake. And so we're not imposing on them for control. We're imposing on them because of love. And any uh, desire that seeks to prevent us from having a bold stand that proclaim the gospel is often deceitfulness. The adversaries here were not okay with the new temple. But at first they tried to blunt its impact by getting involved so it would not be exclusively for their God, 
but they can bring their gods in. And as a church in our age and time, let us seek the welfare of our community that we're in. Let us be more than willing to cooperate with organizations that might differ from us in some ways that we can pursue the welfare and service of the community as long as we're not expected to compromise our deeply held convictions in those partnerships. First tactic of opposition is deceitfulness. Number two is discouragement. It's the second tactic. If they cannot deceive you, they're going to discourage you. After Zerubbabel stood up against their deceitful tactics, he said the right answer. He said, we cannot let you in on this work because God has called us to this, and King Cyrus of Persia commanded this, and so we're going to follow this. They went to discouragement. Verse 4 again. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. The adversaries turned to a campaign of harassment, right? Remember last week we knew that Israel has been shipping materials from Lebanon to the north to build the temple, and so I imagine there were plenty of opportunities to scramble that process, to frustrate their plans, to cause delays, to bribe people from not delivering those materials to putting together well-orchestrated plans to derail their plans to build the temple. And they were good at it because it took them 15 years to restart. And what was the driving force? It's fear. It's always fear. It's fear that then leads to discouragement, to discourage, to take away the courage to do something that God's calling you to do. And these things did remove their courage to rebuild the temple, to reestablish themselves in the land the way God has called them to. If you think about this, I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to know that maybe you even understand where it's just happening currently in your life, that when you fear something in this world, it's easier for you to be controlled. When you fear something in this world, it's easier for you to be controlled because fear impacts action. It leads to a loss of confidence. Can you imagine being one of the project managers of this building project? Can you imagine the meetings that they were having when they realized what was happening? And they're sitting around a table and they're discussing the shipping delays. And they're discussing how those that they relied on got bribed and now we're working for somebody else. Can you imagine those meetings and the struggle of going, guys, we have no money. Our resources are, are gone. How, how are we supposed to do this? They themselves maybe are being intimidated and discouraged personally. That's discouraging. It's a major tactic of opposition. Because again, if you can be discouraged, you will more easily give up on the things God is calling you to do. I think there's not only external discouragement, but maybe even more common uh, that of, of having you um, kind of having to stop the things that you want to do, oftentimes fear will distract you. So not only will fear discourage you, but fear will distract you from the things God is calling you to, and you start focusing your energies on something that's far less important. Which, by the way, is kind of the primary aim, I think, of a lot of our politics is distraction. If they can distract a body and get you to just focus on something and just all your energy gets focused on this one thing, it distracts you from the things, especially as a Christian, that you're called to do. And, and when you, when I think, politics and messaging makes you fear something, 
then you become obsessed with it because you're told this is what you're supposed to fear and you're distracted. In Genesis chapter 3, again, this is not new, Eve told the serpent words that God said that God never said. Eve started making up things that God said that God never said. She was distracted. She was discouraged. She said that God told me you will surely die, and God never said that. But she was discouraged because of an unfounded fear, and it is that fear that the serpent feasted upon to drive her deeper into despair. And so that opposition, as we see in Eve, does not just come from other people. It's not just the other side of the political aisle. It's not just that one cable news host. It can come from within our own minds. We are all too often our own worst critics, aren't we? Oftentimes, nobody's harder on you than you are. And we're beating ourselves up, and we're often stopping ourselves short maybe not even entirely aware of why we're so down on ourselves, but we always put ourselves down. Maybe it's a past experience, a past trauma, a false story that we're telling ourselves, and it slows us down to a crawl. What's happening in those moments? Fear. It's fear of something or someone that drives discouragement. Discouragement that brings about sin or guilt or shame, which then drives us deeper into despair like it did for Eve. And when Adam and Eve did go ahead and eat the fruit, they didn't just feel guilty, they felt shame. And and then they hid from God, and they tried to cover themselves, because shame always separates. Shame creates distance. Shame creates distance between us and God. Shame creates distance from us and other people, because we're too ashamed to confront it. And it casts a weight that is so heavy, that is so much to bear. That's a tactic of opposition. It's a tactic of discouragement. And then for the third tactic, I want to read a portion of the passage that the author inserted in verses 6 to 23. We're not going to read it all. uh, But remember, what I'm about to read is now the author writing 80 years after what's happening here at the temple to show that opposition spans generations uh, that during the reigns of the Greek name Xerxes and Artaxerxes, the next the kings three and four from the timeline, the enemies of the land resorted to writing letters to the kings. And after writing the names of those who wrote the letter, we read the contents of the letter starting in verse 11. So chapter 4, we read verses 11 to 16. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession to the province beyond the river. 
third tactic of opposition is what I'm calling dominion. Dominion. When deceit and discouragement won't do, overt slander is used to oppose the work of God and exercise dominion over somebody. Israel's opposition uh, and their adversaries, now again, 80 years after the fact, now in the time of Ezra, they're lying, they're exaggerating, they're using their power of dominion in order to diminish the work of God's people. And they ironically are doing this because of their own fear. They tried to instill fear into them, but that hasn't worked. So now, out of their own fear, they are now going and asking the king to shut them down. This work ought to stop. The fortifying of the city needs to end. If these walls get built, game over. They have uh, thwarted kings in the past. You'll be next. They'll overpower us all. This is a desperate measure done out of fear in their own flesh. And again, the parallels all throughout Scripture are pretty apparent. The serpent lives to Eve and says, the only reason God told you to not eat of the fruit is because you'll be like him. That's why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit, Eve, because you're going to be like him. She is promising her dominion over good and evil. If you eat this, you will have the power. The serpent does that because of his own fear that he has no power over God. And then in Matthew 4, the final temptation that Satan gives Jesus in the desert, what does he tell him? What's the final temptation? He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, and Satan tells him, I will give you dominion over all these kingdoms. If only you will bow down and worship me. Promising dominion, referring to a different power that will overcome trying to minimize God's power out of desperate fear because Satan knows he can't overpower God. And here in Ezra, the appeal to the king that he needs to crush Israelites' plan to rebuild, otherwise he will lose their dominion over them. It's a desperate move. But the king falls for it. You can go ahead and after and, and read through the king's response, and starting in verse 17. But he responds, oh my gosh, can't believe this is happening. How did this slip through the cracks? And then verse 22, why should damage grow to hurt the king? Or to the hurt of the king? And so he makes a decree for the work to stop. It's a legislative decree that the people of God cannot do what God is calling them to do. In that book, Gospel Bound, Sarah Zilstra, who wrote the chapter I'm going to quote from now, uh, she spent a lot of time with uh, pastors in China. And a lot of you know the story of China and the underground church in China, but during the 1990s and early 2000s, the country's limits on Christianity had actually begun to lift to a pretty significant degree. We also heard this from Phil Remmers, who's our partner who does publishing in uh, many closed countries, and he did a lot of work in China, that there was a period, kind of a golden age of publishing, that they started become, begin to lift some of their restrictions overall. Churches began to worship more openly. Again, resources were allowed more regularly to be bought and sold. But then the church grew rapidly. The church was already growing. They just didn't realize it. But now they start to see that the church is growing. And a big change happened in China in 2013. When the current Chinese president came to power, who saw that growth and wanted to squash it. And he said that no church gathering, including even, um, uh, that no church could gather, including even hosting a Bible study in your home, illegal. 
Donating money to a Christian organization, illegal. Buying a Christian book was not allowed without formal government approval. And the punishment was not just fines or jail time, but they would alter what they call a social credit score. A social credit score that will then impact your ability to buy airline tickets or train tickets, that will limit your ability to get a rent application or to get your kid's school's application accepted or even get a job based on the social credit score that gets dinged every time you get associated with a Christian gathering. Why, does the current, why did the people and the king and Ezra, why does the current uh, president of China go to such great lengths to punish Christians for worshiping God according to the word? Fear. Their own fear of dominion. And so these are the tactics of opposition from the beginning of time. Deceitfulness, discouragement, and dominion. There's nothing new under the sun. There's just a spectrum of intensity that ebbs and flows. And then real quickly, lastly, what is the impact of opposition? Number three, the impact of opposition. Look at the final verse of chapter four. Verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Again, next week, we're going to pick up the story of chapters 5 and 6 and see how the people of Israel overcome this opposition, but we're not quite there yet. The reason why I wanted to do chapter 4 on its own is that so we can see the impact of opposition and recognize its impact on your life. That verse, that the work stopped, would have been unfathomable at the end of last week, wasn't it? Last week, they were in a joyous time of worship. They said the, loud was so, the sound was so loud that people, even in other regions, could hear it. And that was just at the laying of the foundation of the temple. And they were pumped up to do the things God has called them to do back in the land. And now, the work stopped. How in the world is that possible? It's the power of opposition. External experiences that lead to internal discouragement and the work stops. God's people will always face opposition in a fallen world when they are seeking to do the things God has called them to do. A sneak peek into next week will be that Lord sending a prophet, Haggai, to the people of Israel. And the problem was not just the fact that they were facing opposition. The problem that Haggai will call out is that they allowed the opposition to keep them from working, to keep them from persevering. Haggai is going to condemn them for giving up so easily. And it'll be 15 years before it gets picked up again. The impact of opposition is discouragement, and then the work stops. I wonder how many of us this morning can resonate, resonate with the work stopping. Or perhaps you have stopped pursuing the things God has called you to pursue, the relationships, the work, maybe big things, more often little daily rhythms that maybe at one time you felt passionate about, at one time you were fired up about, but it stopped. As we're going to see 
in more depth in the next two chapters, what it takes to overcome is not the removal of the opposition, but the willingness to suffer well and resolve to persevere, trusting that God will not let you fall in the midst of opposition. What I found most fascinating in Zilcher's account of the churches in China was not the opposition they faced, but their response to it. Listen to this quote. It'll be on the screen. None of the Chinese pastors I talked to, pastors who had their churches shut down, who didn't know where they were going to meet next Sunday, felt like they were being persecuted. Pressured, maybe. Some said. But it wasn't anything that they couldn't, with the Spirit's help, face with joy. This is not always the case for the Church of America, but all too often we are shocked by opposition, and then we form our own persecution complex. And opposition either distracts us entirely from God's work in our lives, or we just think everyone's out to get us, and Satan's behind everything, and and we're just victims to everything. Or we point to that opposition as the reason why we can't carry out the Lord's work anymore with joy, like the mistake they made in Ezra. But church, let us learn from our brothers and sisters of faith in China who don't get distracted by forming a persecution complex where everyone has to know about it, but they resolve to continue forward regardless of the opposition with the Spirit's help. And we'll close with this in Hebrews 4. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus faced opposition in the garden on the night when he was betrayed, arrested, and sentenced to death on a Roman cross. He was tempted, but the work did not stop. He prayed for help, and the Spirit strengthened him to overcome that fear. And because he did, because he lived the life we could not and died the death we deserved, he can say to his disciples both then and now, in John 16, that I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for even the places in your word that can be more difficult to hear, Lord, but we thank you that your word reminds us of the reality of opposition that is all around us. Father, we lament that when even our own sin takes form of opposition that we face or others face. And Father, that we know that by understanding the reality of it, Lord, that it drives us deeper into you, Lord, for you alone have overcome this opposition and you alone invite us by your grace into your fold. And so, Father, I pray that, that by, by understanding these things, it might not just make us more knowledgeable, but it would give us courage in a world that is constantly trying to discourage us. Lord, let it be for your glory, not ours. And, Father, allow us to have the power to keep doing the work that you have called us to do here and now. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.